Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, this one is sure to be a cracking conversation. With me today is the former CEO of Foxtel, COO of News Corp, and currently Chairman of Quantium, a board director at Village Roadshow, Chair of Bus Stop Films, a board director of the Newswire service AAP, which was essentially saved by a group of business philanthropists. Uh, And he's also part of an investment group called ACT, which stands for Audiences, Content and Technologies, looking for ventures that are fit for the future. We have so much to cover, so little time, but welcome, Peter Tonner. Uh, Let's start with the first big question around all the turmoil and structural pressures that are on the media game at the moment. You're back neck deep in the sector. What the hell are you thinking? And before we get into what's next, what's your prognosis of the legacy businesses in the media industry right now? Welcome. Big question. Start off with. Thanks, Paul. It is a big question. So why am I back neck deep in the media sector a couple of reasons one is when you're involved in media or have spent time in media it catches you it gets in your blood and uh, it's hard to move away from so it's an area i am keenly interested in but probably secondly i I think you know the media is a really core plank of you know the democracy in the society that we live in and so i think having an involvement in the media as it evolves and goes through this difficult time is fascinating. Legacy businesses, though. You've been in them. You've seen all the things that are going on there and the struggles and challenges they face. What's your sense? Is there, is there hope? Is there optimism? Or is there sort of some really deep radical changes required? I think there's a lot of change required. And I think it's going to take a long, long time before the legacy businesses get through them, if they get through them in their current shape. You know, if, if I reflect back on what's happening in the industry at the moment, you've seen this consolidation where the legacy players are coming together and getting bigger, but at the same time, you've got at the other end this incredible fragmentation of of media providers, whether it be people doing their single podcasts or smaller startups or, you know, organisations that are coming here from internationally. And so I, I think it's got a long way to play out yet. I think one of the challenges of the legacy businesses is that they're broad by nature. And I think broad by nature is appealing in terms of if you're an agency and you want to find somewhere to uh, advertise for your clients, it's easy to go to them because they've got such reach and they've got such breadth. What differentiates, I think, the people at the other end is they might be harder to deal with because of their scale, but they have incredibly deep and passionate followers. And so I think we haven't yet seen the shakeout of how we get the right balance between the the reach and the scale you can get with the legacy businesses versus the very deep emotional engagement that you get with the very fragmented startup businesses. Well, you're right. And, you know, the examples are clearly in front of us at the moment with the consolidation that we've seen with Nine and even News Corp and others. The point about sort of ease of transaction for for an advertising business, an advertising-based business and and for brands, they definitely want less complexity and, and scale can deliver that. But what becomes then of businesses and innovation, uh, innovative companies that are starting up that are relying on advertising 
advertising, should they, or is it moving away from that to subscription-based and other funding sources? I think for a lot of businesses that are starting up now, they have to rely on multiple sources of revenue. And, and I think they need to find a way where they can come together and build the scale between them in order to become important to those agencies. Um, you might recall at the end of last year, I think it was, we, we ran the Upstarts and the Upstarts was an opportunity for seven of these startup media businesses to come together to be able to show the scale, demonstrate that scale to advertisers. I think there'll be more of that collaboration at that end, whether that collaboration is physically as it happened with the Upstarts or whether it's via platforms that help those startup businesses to uh, come together and build the scale that's required to get the focus uh, of the advertiser. Before we get to some of the things you're eyeing, it's fascinating reading a piece in the Australian Financial Review recently on you, a profile on you actually, in which essentially it asserted that you remain a fan of Kim Williams back in his day when he was CEO of News Corp and tried to implement a whole bunch of transformational change that might have hit just a few headwinds, uh, Peter Tonner. Now, I think both of you still get on, but that big initiative that Kim tried to do at News Corp, you know, digital transformation back in probably 2013, thereabouts, um, it hit those headwinds. What are the lessons there? You could argue now that News Corp's doing perhaps very similar to what Kim tried to do five, six, seven years ago. What are the lessons for, for legacy media companies as they, as they grow with that with that change do things faster and, and quicker or what what comes out of this you're right I, I'm a huge fan of Kim's and have been for many years and he's been a great mentor to me looking back all of the things that Kim tried to do at News Corp are things that are happening today and and it's important that they do happen those legacy businesses have to transform Kim had a very aggressive transformation agenda and I think the argument really can only be that it, they were too aggressive for the time and the challenge is how do you bring the organisation along with you on a journey where you have to move very quickly um, and yet the business has been doing things the same way for a long period of time and therefore there's a rejection of that level of change. Uh, I don't think there's an easy answer to it, but I think it's the, the essence of the problem with these legacy businesses is they have to change, they have to change quickly and yet it's very, very hard to change when you've been operating in a certain way for a long period of time. You talked about it sort of being too aggressive at the time under what Kim was trying to achieve. The relativities, you could argue, are the same today, though. There is big transformation that still needs to happen across a bunch of legacy media businesses, and it could be still too aggressive for where even boards or executive management sit or investors want to see returns and so forth. That's quite a juggle. Yeah, it is a juggle, and, and it's a particular juggle because a lot of the the newer media businesses tend to be incredibly focused, incredibly focused around a particular audience, around a particular platform. And yet these legacy businesses have become bigger and bigger. And so the degree of complexity that they have within them is huge and, and probably getting greater. And so the real challenge is how do you simplify a business that's so complex? How do you take the cost out of it? How do you get the engagement with the particular segment of customer that that part of the business is focusing on. And I don't think there's an easy answer. I think when you're a, a legacy business of great scale, it's very, very hard to compete with somebody who is very, very focused, who is targeting a particular segment 
and who knows that segment better than the legacy business will ever know it. And I want to get to some of the, what you're eyeing in the market on that front, but in a legacy context for the final uh, bit of this is that you, you do see a company like Disney, which is a mega company that has transformed appropriately and fast and quickly and is doing quite well. Any others you can think of? Any other examples where you know the models of uh, old becoming new? I think it's very hard to compare the old companies becoming new because most of the old companies are moving in that direction. Where they've got strong enough brands and where they've got strong enough intellectual property, particularly if you take Disney in the content that they're producing, it's a lot easier. I think it becomes much harder if the brands don't stand for something for the consumer and if you don't have that real uniqueness. So with ACT, which is part of the, you're part of this investment firm that's looking for, for, for opportunities across those, those three areas we talked about, uh, you know, audiences, content, technology, what is it that excites you or, or you've got your eye on that says this is a future play? So a couple of things for me. Um, first of all, they have to be focused on audience content and technology, but my, my first perspective on it is we're not interested in investing in um, you know, producing a specific movie or, or backing a specific um, person with great talent. Uh, we're interested more in providing the infrastructure that can support that fragmented uh, media landscape that we're seeing. And so uh, if I use an example of one of the investments we have, it's a, a business called Podcorn. Effectively, it acts as a two-sided marketplace where companies who are looking for a, a, an opportunity to promote their product via sponsorship can find a podcaster who really resonates with their brand, who is seen as being a trusted um, advocate of their brand, matches the two up and allows them to come together and get the deep engagement with that product through somebody who is highly credible with the segment that you're targeting. Um, that That's a uh, based on the premise that 85% of podcasts around the world aren't monetized, um, but many of them have a very deep level of engagement. And so investing in the infrastructure that enables that bringing together of the fragmented podcast community with the fragmented set of advertisers, we think is one of the opportunities that that ability to kind of act as the infrastructure or marketplace that sits between the fragmented side of producers and on the other hand the fragmented side of advertisers i'm imagine you're seeing that as globally scalable then absolutely yeah most of the businesses we're looking at at the moment are either global already or have the ability to be global you've got audiences content and technology in there uh give us a couple of other uh ventures that you're invested in on the technology or audience content side what are they also what are the others oh uh, well let me give you an example this is not an, an act capital example but a uh a personal investment is um, the squeeze, right. which you may be familiar with. The, the, um, the squeeze, the tagline is your shortcut to being informed. We have a daily email newsletter and a daily podcast. Um, we also have a daily podcast called Squeeze Kids. And we have another string of podcasts um, which basically dig deeper into some of the areas, squeeze shortcuts. Um, that's a proposition that I think demonstrates how you can operate these highly appealing propositions to a clearly defined segment of the audience um, at relatively low cost and deliver them and monetize them in a way which you simply can't do uh, if you don't have that connection with the, the consumer. How is the squeeze monetized? Uh, sponsorships. 
we're very careful as to who we take on as sponsors. They have to fit with the brand. They have to fit with the audience. And it's not in-your-face advertising. It's very much um, identify that these are the sponsors and it flows through the product in a very authentic and very natural way. It could be things as simple as, you know, the Australian Mushroom Association sponsoring the recipe that appears on a Friday. Or, or it could be uh, the CBA and some of their community initiatives being promoted to the audience uh, via the squiz. So that is still a sort of brand or advertising based in a different form and a lot of that stuff can be fairly high touch. Is that scalable too then, that, that, sort, of, that sort of model? It is high touch and I think it has to be high touch because with a lot of these new media propositions, the idea is that they are very deeply focused on a, a particular segment um, with the squiz, as an example, over 99% of the people who listen to the squiz say it's their most trusted form of news. But to betray that trust destroys the whole proposition. And so everything that the, the team at the squiz does revolves around making sure that the, the uh, sponsorship, that the structure of the product, that the way it's presented reinforces and the brand and is authentic to the brand. That, that requires a high-touch approach. Yes. So, listen, let's go a little bit broader because I'm fascinated by your sense on the on the fractured civics, if you like, that we're seeing around the world at the moment and, and how much we see social media companies being criticised for contributing to that. How much is social media? How much is media itself and what media is doing uh, to inform or shape public opinion and sentiment? Uh, and then what's the bigger picture here? Is, is there a way out? It seems to be, at least on the surface, to, to be intensifying. Uh, I think through this COVID period, we're seeing an, a lot of uh, intensifying on many fronts. Um, you know, there'd be a number of, of fronts that I think are probably stronger than others. I think there's obviously this very intense focus on companies becoming digital, what I think of as the turbocharged technology transformations where companies know that they have to actually accelerate their digital programs um, dramatically. And, you know, we've probably seen that transformation in the last six months, equivalent to five years that would have occurred elsewhere. Um, that's important because as you go through that transformation, there's winners and losers. And the winners tend to be the ones where um, they've been able to deliver that customer proposition in line with their brand and in a way which is compelling to the brand. In, in fact, one of the I think one of the most interesting uh, pieces of data I've seen is that when you look at sales growth, um, pre-COVID, sales pre-COVID versus post-COVID, the winners really are the omni-channel propositions, uh, those who have bricks and mortar and have online propositions. The, the online part of their business has grown faster than the pure digital plays, but equally, the bricks and mortar areas have grown their sales much faster than those who have bricks and mortar alone. And I think it's the coming together of the multi-channels and the cohesion across the channels of branding and, and sales that are really important. So, so I think that's kind of one of the first dramatic changes we're seeing. I think this is one of the second changes we're seeing, I think, is this uh, surge in kind of soft socialism, I guess I'd call it, uh, where I think there's much more recognition, much more realisation at the moment of the need for, you know, better aged care services, better childcare services, companies with a purpose. And, and I think this is something that is going to continue for a long time. I think those companies that have brands that actually signify authentically 
their focus on society will continue to do much better than those that don't. But I stress the authentic part. I think uh, trying to play in this space if it's not authentically being done is simply not going to work. What are the implications there? You, you sort of touched on it for companies and brands in what you'd call soft socialism or in marketing parlance, they might call it brand purpose, for instance. But authenticity is the key here. Implications, though, for brands and even is there implications for media legacy or new? I think a lot of the media, the new media startups are driven by that purpose that narrowly focused brand that, that is really targeted at a community, creating a community. I think those brands are getting stronger and stronger through this period. Um, those that are broad and are seen as as commercially driven without purpose, I think will continue to decline at a faster rate. It's, it's probably one of the, the third trends that I certainly see coming out of this COVID period is this, this whole idea of the Darwinian death cycle or death spiral, where a lot of those dinosaur businesses that um, have been in decline will decline faster. I think there's a level of protection at the moment through the government support, the JobKeeper, et cetera. When we come to that COVID cliff and that support stops, I think some of those dinosaur businesses will dramatically decline rather than continue at the, the slow rate of decline they have had. And one of the reasons for that is because their brands aren't seen as resonating with today's consumer. And that would go across all sectors then, Peter, just not media included, but beyond? I think it goes beyond, yeah. I think it goes broadly across uh, across the whole of society. Do you think this notion, because you hear it a lot, right, that um, even universities talk about how what COVID's done is what they might have been trying to do for five years, they've now done in five or six months and it's fast-tracked all that. Do you think that this new pressure that's on to transform and digitise and become uh, closer to or be fit for purpose, does it mean that they will be able to save themselves? Are you optimistic on that with those legacy companies or do you think it's you riding the fence on it? Uh, I, I think there'll be winners and losers. Some of that acceleration, the doing things in six months that would have taken five years, some of that includes things like moving to the cloud, companies who are moving away from their traditional legacy-based systems and moving to cloud-based systems, which mean that they're much more flexible as they move forward. Those that are were able to very quickly adopt to working from home because their systems are structured to allow the work from home. Those that are well-positioned to take multiple payment mechanisms as the uh, rate of cash usage declines significantly. Those who are able to have contactless payments. There's a whole range of changes that have flown through very quickly. And I think you probably see yourself when you're, you're out that some organisations have done it better than others. Um, some are struggling because they simply don't have the foundational infrastructure to allow that to happen. What's your top line thoughts, Peter, on the current regulatory uh, heat between uh, technology companies and media? It's been ferocious. I'm, I'm, I've uh, been a little vocal myself. But interestingly, you might have some contrarian thoughts on, on what's going on, on, the, on around the regula- regulatory environment. Uh, I'm not sure I've got contrarian thoughts, but I've got a simple principle on this, which is that regulatory change can only really occur when you go back to first principles and where you start with a clear set of societal objectives and then you drive everything around those societal objectives. Um, I, I think if you take the, the I, I assume you're referring to the ACCC uh, global tech platform proposition. Yes. I think one of the problems with that is I don't think it's clear to the general public what the goals are off the back of that. I think you have to go right back to first principles and to me it seems that those first principles have to be around 
ensuring that the person who produces the content or organisation that produces the content ends up with some of the benefits uh, that go from that that are captured by the or, or provided by the people who consume the content. It's a I think a simple proposition and one that I have uh, long focused on is you have to break the commercial outcomes into two parts. One is the value creation part and the second is the value capture part. And I think what what we've seen uh, through this disruption of, of media, as an example, is that the value creation is still there. There's still people who are creating value from content. The problem is that it's not being captured by those who are creating it. It's been captured by those further down the chain. And I think the the real regulatory change has to focus on recognising that you have to make sure the value is captured in the right place in the value chain and that therefore the value will continue to be created. I'm going to ask you for your intuitive hunch, uh, Peter Tonner, which is with what the current public awareness or public campaign that Google's launched around saying that free services, Google Search or YouTube could be at risk and the quite direct and, and you know, unprecedented really uh, information campaign that Google's been doing. Will the public trust Google or will, they pub, will the public trust the federal government and the ACCC and the media companies? Which way is it going to lean in terms of public sentiment, do you think? Well, I think this is this is a really challenging problem because I think you're pitching groups that are not necessarily at the top of the list of trust in the consumer. You're pitching the traditional legacy media companies, you're pitching the government and you're pitching global tech platforms. And so it's not as though you've got a highly trusted set of players here in this battle. And I think that's one of the reasons I would say you've got to go right back to first principles and really understand what we're trying to do here, because otherwise it's going to be a a public battle between companies which unfortunately don't have the level of trust, organisations don't have the level of trust that we'd like them to have. And I think that is probably going to end up with a inferior outcome. You would hear, though, the claim and some of the research, actually, from the media companies that say, uh, take the point, yeah, we might have been losing trust pre-COVID, but during COVID, trust has, has gone, uh, has rocketed up for them uh, in terms of, uh, with the public, trying to sort through misinformation, information and what the hell's going on. Do you think that's, has trust increased, do you think, for, for some of those uh, media groups or, you know, brands at least? I think you have to be careful as to what you mean by trust. And I think the reality is I think there's been a long-term decline in trust of some of the traditional brands. And I think that long-term decline will have blips along the way. Uh, I'm not sure that um, if if you ask the consumer in six months' time that they won't have changed their view again, whether it's up or down. I think the the problem is if you want to be a truly trusted organisation, you have to be at the top of the heap always, um, not just when there's a crisis. Yeah, good point. Um, now, you just going back to your, your earlier points about value creation versus value capture from media companies, you were part of a consortium that sort of saved AAP, if you like, and AAP, ironically, was probably a victim of what we've we've seen uh, in terms of the ad market and big tech coming in and, and the pressure that's on media companies, and therefore you came in uh, with a group of uh, other businessmen to try and uh, recourse it. Uh, what's the opportunities for AAP? I don't think you're looking for a profit anytime soon. Is that right? Well, the way we've set up AAP is that it now operates as a not-for-profit, and that's very important. So nobody profits from AAP but the public benefits from AAP, and that's the way we think it should be. 
Um, AAP is independent, it's trusted, it's a reliable source of information. We think that that's a core pillar of democracy and that's why we've fought so hard to get to this point. Um, when the the shareholders of AAP announced they were going to close it down, uh, we were concerned for a few reasons. We were concerned because of the loss of jobs for journalists in an environment where it's incredibly tough for that profession in any case. Um, we were concerned around the lack of have of an independent, unbiased, reliable, trusted news source. And we were concerned because a number of startup media companies or early stage media companies uh, and, and a huge number of regional organisations rely on AAP content so that they can create their own differentiated level of content above that. So if I take as an example, there's uh, 255 regional mastheads that carry AAP content. So while the AAP content may not be the regionally focused content in those mastheads, if they had to spend their money on collecting national content, they'd have less money to spend regionally. We want to make sure they can continue to receive that national content so that their investments can go fairly and squarely into reporting on the local communities in which they operate. And that's a really important function for democracy in this country. Well, it is, but it, uh, a not-for-profit model is hardly um, sort of enticing for any media entrepreneurs that may be looking to do content. If it's uh, it's important, totally get that and glad you've done it. But uh, a not-for-profit, if you're looking for uh, entrepreneurs, uh, how do you how do you blend those two contradictory forces, if you like? Well, I think it's it'll be interesting, and and you you know it, we've been quite public when we talked about who was behind the AAP consortium that it was some philanthropists and some impact investors. Um, the idea here is that it is not-for-profit, but it doesn't mean that we're going to have, have our hands out to those philanthropists year after year after year or to the impact investors year after year after year. Our proposition is that we want AAP to be self-sustaining, um, but there's going to be a transition period to get there. So the, for the, the next few years as we transition the business model, there's no doubt that we're going to be reliant on funding from our philanthropist partners and from our um, impact investors and from as many sources as we can can get. Um, but as we come out the end of that transition, we're very resolute that the organisation has to be stand be able to stand on its own two feet. Um, any um, surplus that's generated through the way in which we operate the business will be put back into the business so that we can grow it back again to the position that we think it has to hold in the community, which is to cover as many of the important areas of news and sports um, that that really uh, deserve to be covered in this country. I haven't touched on it all, and it's just a light touch really, is you're also chair of Quantium, which is obviously a big data and analytics business. And if you listen to most people that say data is the new oil for, 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 for business, uh, what's the attraction for you at Quantium? What, what are you, why did you join and what do you see there? I, I think data is the new oil, if you want to use that expression. One of the things I love about that space is the difference between the top 10% of people who work in big data and the average is not a 50% improvement or a 60% improvement or even 100% improvement. It's 100 times better, 1,000 times better. And so when you get data right, then you can have a massive impact on the organisation in which you're applying it or in the, the um, society in which you're applying it. And one of the things I love about Quantium is that they've got 18 years of doing big data at an advanced analytics at industrial scale. Um, they know how to deal with massive data sets. 
they know how to, first of all, protect the data and protect the, the security of the data. Um, they know how to organize the data. They know how to process the data and analyze it and come up with insights out of it. And that's something that's a very rare skill, but something which will become increasingly critical to organizations and governments around the world. I'm going to ask a personal question of Peter Tonner because it's fascinating with such a diverse portfolio of investments, interests and board roles and so forth. How do you carve up your day? Are you busier today than you were as an executive at, at Foxtel or News Corp or even uh, Boston Consulting Group, which we haven't even got to yet? But what does Peter Tonner's day look like? Is it more hectic than it was? And how do you bring together all those diverse interests in your head? Because uh, it's, it's quite eclectic. Well, I think there's a a common theme through a lot of things that I do, and that's an important element for me, which is the common theme sits around Australian stories and basically support for Australian stories. And that flows through from the work I do at Bus Stop Films, the work with the film, television and radio school, the work at Village. Um, it, it's a kind of a, a broad element in the work I do in media. Um, so I think it helps to have that common element. Um, it's a big adaptation for me to go from a full-time executive role where you spend 100% of your time and 100% of your life focused on one thing to have this diversity of interests, um, something that personally suits me very well. It means that I can add value in the areas that I'm good at adding value in, but I'm forced to stay away from the areas that I'm less good at adding value in. And that takes a lot of adjustment personally, but once you get it right, or once I eventually get it right, uh, I think it's a great place to be in. How long did it take you to get to the first initial bit of getting it right from your exit from a full-time executive role? Uh, I would say I'm still getting there. Yes. Yeah, I'm more comfortable now than you were when you started, I'd imagine. Well, you'd hope. <laughs> Absolutely. Final two questions for you, uh, PT, is um, you cut your teeth early in your career at, uh, at Boston Consulting Group. Now, there's a fascinating uh, stat that came that circled around last year. Uh, Financial Review actually published this piece, which was that Australian corporates and government are the highest spending market per capita in the world on consultants. What's going on there? Why is this so in Australia? Oh, I think that's a really good question. I don't know. I, I can't claim to be the expert in that, but I would say that back in my days when I was at BCG, one of the things that really stood out for me is that Australia really seemed to punch above its weight in terms of creating uh, global talent. And I think part of the reason for that is that Australia, if you're growing up in an Australian organisation, because the market is smaller than you know, the US or Japan or the UK, or many other markets, uh, I think you naturally get exposure to a very wide range of topics, a wide range of functions. And I think that enabled us to create very, very skilled um, general managers. I think one of the things that has happened in the last 20 or 30 years is the, the focus, I think, has shifted away from very skilled general managers to some real deep expertise. And I wonder whether part of what you're describing, that phenomena, is driven by the fact that while we've developed very strong general managers, we maybe haven't developed that depth of, of skill set in particular capabilities that maybe you develop in bigger markets and that therefore we're reliant on external advice to a greater extent for those things. Is there a way around that, Peter, in terms of capabilities development or is it just because of this nature of the market and its scale or lack of scale compared to others that it's inevitable it'll continue? I think we have to 
overcome it. I think one of the issues for, I think, many Australian organisations and for Australian government is having managers that are accountable and responsible for the work that they are doing without relying on those third parties to such a great extent. Um, so I think we need to find a way out of it. Some of it, I think, is about actually the way in which we develop people within um, you know, society as a whole in Australia. Now, one of the things that I've always insisted on doing is to basically stay abreast of the areas I'm working in and um, I study quite a lot. Uh, I try to make sure I'm on top of things. I'm not sure that that's as encouraged here as it is in other parts of the world. Well, let's go there. I heard a rumour that you might be actually doing some sort of coding course at, at Harvard or some exotic uh, US institution. Is that true? I'm not sure I'd call it a coding course, but I, I am doing the Harvard Business Analytics Program, uh, which is an 18-month um, program at Harvard Business School. And that's something that I do because I want to be able to talk about Python and I want to be able to use R. I want to be able to understand big data and analytics in a way that goes beyond superficial um, high level, but can get down into the, I don't want to be a coder, I don't want to be the guy that does the analytics, but I want to continue to be able to um, question, to probe, to make sure that the answers that are being put in front of me are the, the right answers. And I think you need to actually continue to learn, continue to develop as the world moves to new areas, if you want to be able to take that role of challenging and questioning things. I don't know how you find the time to do that, but one, any other Australians, and two, what sorts of people are, are in that course? Yeah, I think it's it's an interesting observation Your early, to your earlier point. I'm the only Australian that's doing that course in a group of, um, I guess, is about 80 people. There's a lot of people from different parts of the world. There's a very wide range of stages of career as well. I'm not the oldest, and I'm probably certainly not unusual in my age there. It's, it's a very wide variety of people all of them who have a fundamental interest in big data and analytics and how they can be used to improve society and organisations. Well, I want to see your marks at the end because I'll probably feel somewhat underdeveloped at the end of this one. To wrap up, Peter Tonner, um, the final question is the crystal ball, and it is a crystal ball, I know, but the next 12 months, COVID, whatever happens, what's your sense uh, on where things land in 12 months' time or perhaps post-COVID look like, whatever that looks like? God, who knows? Yeah, I think that's that's a very, very hard one. I had a view at the very beginning of COVID that I was ridiculed for, that international borders would be closed until uh, the end of 2021. I think I'm looking more and more correct right. in that. At the same time, I'm a real optimist. And uh, I think coming out of COVID, I think there'll be a number of key changes. I think there will be winners and losers, but I think those organisations that win will be well set up for the future. Um, I think there'll be changes in the way in which we work. I think things like the work from home practice, I think it's here forever, but I think that will fundamentally change the way in which we organise offices and the way in which we come together as groups. One of the things I notice is that while people say they're happy working at home, they also miss the social aspect. And it starts to become visible that the teams aren't quite as coherent as they used to be. So I think there'll be more demand for collaborative working spaces, more demand for people coming together on maybe a couple of days a week rather than five days a week, but spending time together rather than spending time sitting at a desk doing work that they could be doing at home. That's the sense you get across the board, isn't it? Yeah, I think it all sounds good to work from home, but 
you do need to have that interaction at some point to get the most out of the organisation that you're working with. So a blend is what you're talking about. And, and then the other thing I, I hear constantly across the, the, the industries that we cover is is how do you create or sustain or advance culture uh, in, a, in, a, in an isolated world where everyone's working from home? It's very, very difficult. And so that blend, I guess, of what you're talking about, collaborative spaces, helps maybe address that. It helps, but I think also back to the earlier point about values-based organizations and values-based cultures i think if if you don't start with the core of authentic values then it's very very hard to instill anything uh particularly when people aren't in a common place if you start with that very strong set of core values you can reinforce it even when people aren't together and so i think that's one of the reasons why i say when there'll be winners and losers i think the winners will be those who have built strong values-based cultures and have been able to sustain those through this period versus those who don't have the underpinning foundation to their cultures where the culture will degrade through this period. Peter Tonner, thanks for your time. Great conversation and look forward to, um, again, those marks from Harvard. I want to see the report card. Good luck. Stay safe. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Paul. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre, that's moi, in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater, music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button.